You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. Good morning. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to make your way to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, our text for this morning is going to be verses 37 through 42 of chapter 6. And if you're a guest with us, we are in a series called From the Manger to the Throne, and we have been making our way through this gospel of the four gospels we've been studying this one, the gospel according to Luke. And today, we come to part three of what we've called the greatest sermon ever preached. It began in chapter 6, verse 20. We have spent two weeks until today looking at this sermon. Today, we're going to look at it again. And next week, we will conclude the greatest sermon ever preached as it closes out in verse 49. And if you recall, Jesus preached this sermon before a large crowd, a crowd made up of both disciples and spectators. And the primary message that he was communicating in this sermon was to explain the nature of true discipleship. He wasn't saying, here's what you must do to be a disciple. That's faith and repentance. But once you are a disciple, you should look different than you did before. If you now belong to me, what should your life look like? What kind of characteristics should mark your life? And this passage we're looking at this morning, chapter 6, verses 37 through 42, it can be divided into two parts. So that's how we're going to look at it and listen to it this morning. Verses 37 through 38, Jesus is going to emphasize a point. And then in verses 39 through 42, he is going to then make a a new point in that section. So let me read here in a moment, verses 37 and 38, and just know that in these verses, Jesus is going to exhort us to keep our hearts wide open. That's what Jesus is going to exhort us to do in these two verses, is to keep our hearts wide open. Church, this is God's holy, inspired, and authoritative word. Luke chapter 6, verses 37 and 38. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Or what the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now look back at verse 37. An immediate question comes to our minds, a question we must answer after hearing these statements from Jesus. He began in verse 37 with these words, judge not and you will not be judged. What did Jesus mean when he told his disciples to not judge or not to condemn, but instead to forgive and 
to give. Well, in my opinion, I think that phrase, judge not lest you be judged, is the most misquoted phrase in all of the Bible. Most often, when this phrase is used or quoted, it's done so in the context of someone condemning certain sins instead of condoning them, and there's almost a rebuke, you shouldn't do that, judge not lest you be judged. That's how the world uses it. Unfortunately, sometimes as Christians, we can be tempted to think that's the appropriate context for Jesus's words. I mean, isn't that what Jesus meant? He does go on to say, do not condemn Isn't that what he's inferring here? Was Jesus implying by this phrase, judge not lest you be judged, that we shouldn't speak against certain lifestyles or speak against certain sins? Because after all, aren't we all sinners? Is that what Jesus is communicating here? Well, I want to suggest when we read this phrase and the commands that Jesus gives in verses 37 through 38, when we read it, within the immediate context of this sermon, and when we read within the broader context of Luke's gospel, we realize not only is it appropriate, but it's necessary at times to make judgments about one another's behavior. It's called accountability. It's called being a disciple and caring for other disciples. We don't do it out of a wrong spirit, but that verse should not be used out of context. See, the kind of behavior Jesus is correcting here is a very specific kind of judgmental posture. It's It's a posture of heart that condemns and refuses to forgive or to give to those that have taken advantage of us. That's the context here. If, if I can remind us, remember, this is an entire sermon. What's been so hard about these last three weeks is to know where to end and where to begin because this was an entire sermon. So we have to remember everything that's been said so far and even everything we're going to say today flows into next week. So we have to remember these words in the context of what we heard last week. Listen to verses 27 and 28 of Luke 6. But I say to you, who here love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And then the passage right before ours, verse 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great in heaven, and you will be sons of the Most High, For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. See, when you hear these commands in light of the previous passage that we heard last week, you realize Jesus was calling his disciples to do something extraordinary and radical. What Jesus was saying when he told them, to not judge, not condemn, but to forgive and to give. He was calling them to do something radical. Not only were his disciples not to respond in vengeance towards those who mistreat them, they're not to act like victims, even though they may have been victimized. That's what we should hear in Jesus' words. 
He doesn't just tell them, don't respond with vengeance. When people slap you on the face, when they take what is yours, when they hate you, when they abuse you, when they curse you, he doesn't just say, don't respond in like manner. See, his, his call isn't just don't respond with vengeance, but don't act like a victim. And this is a radical, radical call by Jesus at any point in history because it goes against our flesh, but I think it's really radical in a day and age that promotes victimhood. We live in a culture right now that promotes victimhood. And Jesus was saying to his disciples, there's going to come a day when you're going to be mistreated and you're going to be victimized. And not only are you not to respond with vengeance, you're not to walk around as a victim. Now, before I go any further, let me just say a brief word because I, I, I want to be very clear about the context of Jesus' words and I, wanna, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying and not what he's not saying. So I want to say a brief word to those who've experienced abuse of any kind. If you've been victimized in the past, first of all, I know the pain of that abuse continues to haunt you today. If you are a survivor of abuse or you know someone who has been abused, let me first say, I am deeply Sorry, and my heart is filled with sorrow that you or someone you love has been victimized in a grievous way. Abuse leaves deep scars on the soul. And I want you to hear this morning, this message isn't calling for you to overlook the offense of your abuser. That's not the context of this passage. If, if you or someone you know has experienced any kind of abuse, I would encourage you to talk with someone, maybe one of the pastors or a counselor who knows that background and can give you solid advice and counsel and care. Because we know how hard it is if you've experienced that or know someone that has to know how to navigate and move forward. See, what, what Jesus was talking about here this morning has a very specific context. I think it's aimed at his disciples, and it's to help them, it's to help us as the church respond to opposition and persecution. I think that's the context of Jesus' words. See, we can be tempted to believe as Christians, as I said a minute ago, as long as we're not taking vengeance on people, an eye for an eye, if we're not doing that, then our posture of judgment and condemnation towards those who are antagonistic towards our faith is justifiable. When, when, when those who can't stand what we believe mistreat us, even take from us, wrongly accuse us, we think as long as we don't respond in some egregious way, then it if in our hearts we still are filled with judgment and condemnation, that's justifiable. I mean, who wouldn't be so upset and angry? And But here's the problem. When we begin to give in to that mentality, 
Here's what occurs. Those who hate us become our enemies. And if you think back to last week's passage, think about what Jesus was saying to his disciples when he says, love your enemies. Do you know what he was saying? He doesn't say, they're your enemies. They treat you like they're your enemies. You don't treat them like they're your enemies. You love them. They may hate you. They may consider you their enemy. But you and I are not to consider them our enemy. We're to treat them opposite of them we would treat an enemy, even though they're treating us like one. Do you see how radical this was, that what Jesus was calling them to do? See, what happens when we treat those who hate us like enemies, our hearts become hardened. They do. Our hearts become hardened. And what's, what's wrong with that? I mean, isn't that natural? Isn't that how we should respond? I mean, somebody has treated us so poorly, shouldn't we close off our hearts to them? Well, here's what we learn from these verses, why we must keep our hearts wide open even when we are mistreated because the way we respond to those who persecute us, it reflects and it impacts the spiritual condition of our hearts. Think about what Jesus just said here. He said, the way you and I, if we are disciples of Jesus, the way we respond to those who persecute us, it does two things. It reflects the spiritual condition of our heart, and it impacts the spiritual condition of our heart. That's why we have to let our hearts remain wide open, though it is natural to close them off and to let them become hard. Look back again at verses 35 and 36, last week's passage. Notice how verse 35 ends. Jesus says, for he, being God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And then he goes on to say, be merciful, even as your father is merciful, which raises a question. Why should we forgive our enemies? And why should we be willing to give from, to them when they take from us? And here's the answer, if we look back to last week, because that reflects the heart of God towards sinners. Our response to those who mistreat us should be in light of how God treats them. And notice how God treats them. It says that he is good to those who are ungrateful and evil, and he shows them mercy. If anybody had a reason and a right to condemn those who are evil, it would be God. And yet, how many days does he show them kindness by letting them have air in their lungs and doing 10,000 things they do not deserve, but he shows them mercy. He doesn't give them what they deserve. He shows them mercy, and we must do the same. And when we don't, it, it reflects the spiritual condition of our heart. But there's something else Jesus says here that's we need to really kind of grab onto and reflect on. 
He not only tells us that when we refuse or fail to respond rightly to those who mistreat us, does it reflect the condition of our heart? It actually impacts it. See, if we fail to forgive or if we're not willing to give even though those we're giving to do not deserve it, we're told by Jesus it will impact our relationship with God. Look back at these verses again. It's what Jesus said. See, if our heart becomes hardened by the sins of others, it will affect the way we relate to the Lord and how the Lord relates to us. Where do I see that in this passage? Well, you have to ask yourself this question when you read Jesus' words. When he says, judge not and you'll not be judged. Who will we not be judged by? Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Who will we not be condemned by? Give and it'll be given to you. And he says, here's the picture. If you give, it'll be given to you. And now he's using a, a metaphor, an, an analogy from that period of of an ancient Near East where the economy was primarily agrarian. So one of the primary points of currency was, was grain. And he said, it's like you've opened up your robe and the person is giving you grain and they're doing everything to make sure you get the most possible. They're shaking it out. They're shaking it up. They're doing everything so that they're filling your lap with it. He says, that will happen to you. You give and what you're going to get in return is abundance. So the question is, who's doing all of that? Well, the answer is God. I think what's happening here is called a divine passive. When we're not told who's doing an action, it's assumed that it's the Lord. For example, if you read a sentence and it says, Jack threw Jane the ball, you knew how Jane got the ball because Jack threw it. But what if I told you Jane caught the ball? Your question is, who threw it to her? So we're told, you're not going to be judged. You're not going to be condemned. You're, you're, you're going to receive in great measure. From who? And the answer is, from the Lord. So we must take heed of these words from Jesus, especially what he says at the end of verse 38. Listen to these words. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. The standard we use for others, God will use on us. Let me ask you to consider this question. Would you want God to treat you like you treat those who've wronged you? If God said, from this point forward, I'm going to treat you like you treat those who wrong you, who would say, sign me up? We would say, oh, please don't, Lord. Oh, please, please don't relate to me that way. It's a sobering thought, right? By the measure we use, it will be measured upon us. That's the standard it will be used for us, see, these words from the lips of Jesus, they should warn us not to close off our hearts towards those who treat us wrong. 
I've seen this many times in my life, and I'm sure you have too. I have observed firsthand what unforgiveness and bitterness can do to a person relationally, what it can do to someone emotionally. And I have seen the effect that unforgiveness and bitterness have had on people spiritually. That's why our hearts cannot become hard. It it would be easy for that to happen, especially when we feel justified. People are maligning us. They're treating us wrong. Be easy to say, what else should I do? But that's why we have to keep our hearts wide open. And according to the next thing that Jesus says in verses 39 through 42, not only must we keep our hearts wide open, we must keep our eyes wide open. Let me now read verses 39 through 42 as Jesus now transitions to his next point. Verse 39, he also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let let me take out the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. Friends, the important lesson we take away from verses 39 through 42 is this. Failing to see ourselves accurately blinds us and harms others. That's the point Jesus just made. Failing to see ourselves accurately, it blinds us and it harms others. Others, look look back at verse 39 and think about the answer to this comical question Jesus asked his disciples. He said, if a blind man leads a blind man, will they not fall into a pit? And the obvious answer is yes. It's dangerous, not helpful for a blind man to help another blind man to get around. He says, If they do so, they're going to fall into a pit. And in that culture, he's not just speaking of hazards then. They would have all thought of the Old Testament. And how many times in the Old Testament is the word pit associated with destruction? Imagine there is a man walking around an ancient Near Eastern town where there's not paved roads and sidewalks. And he can't get around. And he yells out, would somebody help me get around? And another blind man says, I'll do it. He doesn't tell him he's blind. Now, we may think, well, that was very gracious of him. No, that was foolish. It was foolish because a blind man can't help another blind man get around. And the implications of what Jesus is saying are huge. He's saying if you cannot see things clearly, you shouldn't put yourself forward as a spiritual guide. And yet that's what was happening in Jesus' day. Think about the Pharisees. 
So many people wanted to be spiritual guides, but they were as blind as the ones they were leading. They wanted to put themselves forward as guides, but their eyes were not seeing things clearly. And then Jesus moves into verse 40 and says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. So after what he just said about the blind leading the blind, he then makes this point. A disciple never rises above his teacher. The point of discipleship isn't so that you get beyond your teacher. Listen to what Jesus says. The point of discipleship is that you would be like your teacher. And in this case, the teacher is Jesus. The point of discipleship is clear. If we're going to be mature disciples, we must seek to emulate Christ. That's the point of discipleship, Christ-likeness, Christ-likeness in our attitudes, in our actions. If you were to summarize this entire sermon we've heard two weeks from, and now today and next week as we close it out, you could summarize it like this. What is the point of discipleship? It's Christ-likeness. It's to emulate the teacher. It's to emulate the master. It's to emulate the savior. It's christ Likeness. And in the context of this passage, we see disciples are called to respond to their enemies in a Christ-like manner. But not only that, they're also called to respond to their brothers and sisters in faith who've sinned against them. Did you notice the transition between verses 37 and 38 and now 39 and 42? In, in the section we just looked at, Jesus was talking about how do we respond to our enemies? Now he says, let's talk about how do we respond to our brothers, our brothers and sisters in the faith. How do we respond to them? And what we see here in verse 41 is that Jesus offers another comical illustration. I mean, it really is comical. He says this, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own? Now, imagine this. Imagine a man with a big, huge beam in his eye. Now, I think growing up hearing this story, I imagined a two-by-four. But actually, the word Jesus chose speaks of the weight-bearing log for a roof. It's not a two-by-four this is, a, this is a beam big enough to carry all of the weight of the house. And he's got this huge beam in his eye. And Jesus said, then he goes up to his, his brother and says, hey man, you got some sawdust on the corner of yours. That's comical. It's outrageous. Jesus is saying, I mean, you got this huge beam in your eye, but you're concerned because your brother has a little speck in his. And to make matters worse, if we really pay attention to the illustration Jesus gives, it's not just the man has a beam in his eye. Guess what? He is blind to his predicament. He doesn't even know it. <laughs> Not only does he have a big beam coming out of his eye and he's concerned with his brother and his little sawdust speck, he has no idea the predicament he is in. 
Did you know what did you notice what Jesus did here in verse 41 that was so wise? Jesus poses a question to each disciple as if each one of them were the man with the beam in his eye. He didn't just tell an illustration, he didn't just give an illustration. Notice what he did. He asked it as a question. And, and, and the question was: assuming every single one of you are just like that. Do you know what Jesus is doing here? By bringing this crazy illustration in the form of a question that makes them have to consider, I'm that guy, Jesus is calling them to do what is unnatural and uncomfortable for everybody. He's calling them to the act of self-evaluation. Here's what doesn't come to us unnaturally. We all are good at seeing the faults of everyone else. We are great at seeing the weaknesses and the failures and the sins of everyone else, starting with our spouse, our children, our neighbor, our government, everybody else. And we say, oh, I'm just being discerning. If we only had half as much discernment for ourselves, to see ourselves. Where are we blind? Where are we not seeing clearly? See, I I, I have to confess, I don't know if what I'm sharing you can relate to. I think you can. But often I can see perfectly the deficiencies, or I think I can see perfectly the deficiencies and the faults of others. And their faults are often microscopic in compared to the big beam bulging out of my eye. I've noticed how often I just don't see clearly. And often we don't see clearly. We, we, we think we see our neighbor's sins. We think we see their faults but actually we're blind to our own. And Jesus said that leads to hypocrisy. Listen to what he said then in verse 42 as he rounds out this point and this illustration. He says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own? You Hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will clearly see to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. This is so instructive. According to Jesus, hypocrisy is not always the cause of someone trying to be fake. Often when we think of hypocrisy, we think of someone who knows they're not something, trying to fool everybody like they are something. That's a form of hypocrisy, but Jesus says there's another form of hypocrisy, and I actually think it's the one that is most common. It's not that someone knows they're a fake and they're trying to fool you. It's someone thinking they're far more mature than they really are. They're not trying to fool you. They fooled themselves. They actually are walking around thinking, I see so clearly if everybody would just listen. 
My gift of discernment is off the charts. I see so clearly. And that can lead to a form of hypocrisy because in reality, we don't see clearly. And when we respond in like manner, when we come to people trying to take out the speck in their eye, when we have a large beam in ours, we, we are a hypocrite. And let's be honest, hypocrites can't help anyone. Let me ask you this question. Who here would want someone who's blind to their own spiritual deficiencies to help them with their sins and weaknesses? Who here would want that? Who here would say, hey, you know, I, I, I could use a little bit of counsel. Is there anybody here who is just totally blind to your own deficiencies and weaknesses? I'd love for you to counsel me. Imagine having a trainer at the gym. You've been just not taking care of your health and you, you realize, you know what, I need to start going to the gym. So you sign up, you get a trainer, you're super excited, but you haven't really been working out for a while and it's not going as you planned and you're just not doing all the exercises and this trainer chastises you. But here's the funny thing. Here's the irony. As this guy chastises you, you notice he's morbidly over obese. And while he's telling you to exercise, he's eating Twinkies. Who would here would still want him to be your trainer? I wouldn't. That's the point Jesus is making. Now listen, no one, no one is perfect. And therefore, perfection and sinlessness, sinlessness is not a requirement for someone to help us spiritually. Because if that was the case, who would be qualified? So we can't have that idea. You know what? I, I can't speak into anybody's life. Who am I to share with them their sin struggles? I sin my, myself. We, we, can, we can think that way. Or we can say, who are you to tell me about my sin struggles? You have your sin struggles. Listen, if, if, if perfection and sinlessness was the qualification for receiving help, no one would get it. The point Jesus is making is that hypocrites can never be spiritually helpful no matter how well-intentioned they are. They end up harming people instead of helping people. They harm those people, and they end up harming the community they're a part of. So, what causes hypocrisy? This kind of hypocrisy, according to verse 42. Jesus tells us, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? Do you see the predicament? Do you see the problem? We cannot see the severity of our sin, but all the while we're keenly aware of the smaller patterns of sins in a brother or sister in Christ. Think about the Pharisees. Think about some of the stories we've already read in Luke's gospel where they're concerned that Jesus is wanting to heal on the Sabbath as if he's sinning. And in the meantime, 
They tell him, it's not right for you to heal on the Sabbath, and they accuse him of blasphemy, and yet they've committed blasphemy themselves. Talk about a big beam in your eye. You're worried about Jesus healing someone in need of healing on the Sabbath? You're accusing God of blasphemy? And yet they could not see it. So here's the question for us. How do we keep our eyes wide open in order to see the sin that so easily blinds us? Did you hear the predicament there again? How do we keep our eyes wide open in order to see the sin that so easily blinds us? See, the problem, I I never read this passage this way. I thought that the hypocrisy was that this person has a big log in their eye, and they're just going, I'm not not worried about my log. I'm going to deal with this speck. They don't see it. Their hypocrisy is that they think, I don't have a log in my eye. That's why they're going to the brother with the speck. Well, then how in the world do we solve that? How in the world can we keep our eyes wide open so that we can see what often we can be blinded to? Well, let me share with you two things in closing, two practical points. Probably many more things we could say, but I think these two help us already deal with this problem of keeping our eyes open so that we can see clearly our sin that we can easily be blind to. Here's the first one. Be suspicious of yourself. Be suspicious of yourself. I'm very confident in my assertions about the sins of others. I'm certain I know their motives. I like no confidence when I'm telling you you're wrong. But I struggle when you tell me I'm wrong. Maybe we ought to be a little bit more suspicious. We don't see as clearly as we think we can. I regularly hear that in counseling people in conflict. They say, well, I know what that person was doing. You do? Well, that would make you the Lord. You know their heart? You know their motives? You don't. And they're confident, yeah, I do. And they can see that person's sin so clearly. But their own, it's just like, yeah, I don't. They've told me I've done these things. I'm really not convinced. We can all struggle with that, can't we? So let's be suspicious of ourselves. Secondly, make Christ your standard to be judged by. Think about verse 40 again. A teacher is not above his disciple. Make make Christ your standard. Here's what we learn in Luke's gospel. Think about Luke 18. We're going to get to later. Do you remember what was wrong with the Pharisee as he looked at the tax collector? It said he compared himself 
to him and he felt righteous. Here's a question to ask yourself. If you were judged by God in light of the perfect standard of Jesus Christ, how would things turn out? See, you know why we can't see clearly? Because we're seeing this way. Oh, compared to him, I'm doing well. Compared to her, I'm doing well. Look at Jesus and say, if God judged you on the basis of his perfect standard, would you be okay? The answer is no. Jesus was perfect and holy And his standard is is perfect and holy. And the more we study his life, the more we hear his words, the more we see his actions, especially the fact that he's willing to die on a cross for our sins, we begin to see how imperfect and immature we really are. So what should that cause us to do? It should cause us to behold Christ And it should cause us to benefit from his greatest act of obedience. His greatest act of obedience that defines all that he said and all that he did. His death on the cross for our sins. See, our problem, my problem, and your problem that keeps our eyes from not being wide open is that we don't focus on Christ. We don't focus on his perfect standard and say, yeah, we don't, we, don't, <laughs> we don't measure up to that. And we don't focus on his, on his death that made it possible for us to be forgiven. So here's how I want to close this morning. I want us to think about how then do we measure our growth and gauge our level of spiritual maturity in light of Christ and his cross. And I want to share with you as we close this diagram I'm borrowing it from somebody else. Don't know who the original thing is. If someone was to ask me to draw a picture of what Christian maturity should look like, that's it. Do you notice it? Two lines. They start touching. The further they go out, the more they separate. Top line says deeper and deeper knowledge of God's holiness. The more we're aware of God's holiness, the more we have a deeper knowledge of our sinfulness. But here's the good news. Look at the gap in between. The greater the gap gets, the greater the cross becomes. You want somebody to draw you a picture of how do I know if I'm growing and maturing as a Christian? There it is. Are you more aware of God's holiness and more aware of your sinfulness and more grateful for the cross than ever? That ought That ought to be our standard. That ought to be how we see ourselves. And when we do, it affects the way we live. So what must we we do? We must fix our eyes, not on our sins, and definitely not on the sins of those around us. We must fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. And the more we see who he is, and how perfect he is, the more we realize how much we have failed. But the good news is the more we see that, the more we are grateful that he died in our place. And the more the cross becomes sweeter and sweeter and sweeter every day.
That's why we're going to close this morning after I pray the praise team's going to come. We're going to close by singing, turn your eyes. Because the application for this morning isn't becomes, become introspective. So you can see that big log in your eye. <laughs> the application for this morning is let's turn our eyes to Jesus. And the more we look at him, the more we will see ourselves clearly and the more we will see those who we want to serve clearly. And we will avoid hypocrisy and we will actually help instead of harm those that we want to serve and care for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray now that you would help us to take in what we've heard, to internalize it. That we wouldn't just hear points and truths and illustrations, but Lord, I pray that throughout this time, as the word was being preached, Lord, you have been speaking to our hearts and that we have not only heard you speaking to us then, but you're still speaking to us now and you want to speak to us more about maybe where our hearts are not wide open and there's bitterness and unforgiveness that we need to deal with or where our eyes aren't wide open and we're not seeing ourselves accurately. So Lord, help us to fix our eyes now on you to leave here this morning humbled but full of grace because we see the cross more clearly and we see the cross with greater appreciation. So Lord, we ask now as we sing that you would help us leave here this morning rejoicing in what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.